Welcome into the salon. This is volume 24. I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and my partner, as always, is golf course builder and unrepentant old golf course evangelist, Jim Urbina. This is a long episode with a lot of talking and hopefully a lot of thought-provoking discussion. We're spending it with Rob Collins, the designer, along with partner Tad King, of the popular Sweetens Cove in Tennessee, the recently opened Overton Park public course in Memphis, the upcoming Red Feather design in Lubbock, and of course, Landman Golf Club in northeastern Nebraska that just opened in the fall of 2022 to widespread curiosity, acclaim, and even wider views. Rob is, as always, very engaging and forthcoming about his work and ideas and about how Landman came to be, and we'll get into that talk. Right after I ask you to share a link to this podcast with your friends, family, industry colleagues, and on your social media channels. Basically, with anyone you know who likes to learn about golf courses and hear directly from the designers who build them. Subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating and review while you're there, please. And most importantly, I hope you've been doing your laundry in cold water. <laughs> I feel like the radio host in a Christmas story interjecting some subterfuge marketing into the regular programming. Remember to drink your Ovaltine? <laughs> Which is appropriate as we head into the holiday season. But this message to remember to wash in cold is for the environment and your pocketbook. You save money on heating and electric, help conserve resources, and your clean clothes will never know the difference. I'm so pleased you're listening. We're going to get into the talk with Rob Collins in just a moment. But first, Jim has a quote he'd like to read. You know, Derek, people always ask, how, how do you get started? Where do you go? What are you looking for when you start a new design, a new golf course? How does the routing evolve? What are the greens you work on, the tees, the angles? What are you looking for? And if, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote for you from George Thomas, adapting the golf course to the ground. Do you mind? Oh, I'd like to hear it. Great. I'm glad you've never disagreed with me. Uh, you have never said no yet, Derek. Thank you. <laughs> I doubt I ever will. <laughs> Great. And I quote George Thomas, adapting the course to the ground. As one learns the land and its possibilities, one commences to visualize greens, tee shots, and even entire fairways, which appear here and there disjointedly. Just as one discovers parts of a picture puzzle which stand out clearly, but do not fit with one another, such finds should be sketched on a map for future reference to patch them together. Among the green sites which stand out are some which are too fine to lose, and other holes which must be discovered and will link them together. When you are able to connect several holes with a start or a finish, you are beginning to place the framework of your golf course. Too often, you must either give up one promising hole or another, as you will frequently find it impossible to bring them together and to arrive correctly at your solution. You should work out your problems on a contour map or on paper and decide which has the most superlative worth, end quote. Thomas talks about finding greens, sometimes having to give up some of the holes, connecting the dots. And people 
simply take your golf course that you play 18 holes and immediately start to decide which is good and which is bad. And the architect of record, the owner, the builder, they also do the same thing. Derek, it's not that easy. And I often say to people, well, if you're so good, here, here's the map. Have a go at it. See how you do. That, yeah, I, I've had this conversation before and probably on this podcast. It's, I think golfers can sense a good routing. They can sense intuitively if the course sits on the ground in the right way and the greens are located in interesting places on the on the topography. Uh, some courses marry incredibly well with their surroundings and the landscape and others fight it and and you you can pretty easily tell a poor routing or a poor development that forced the golf course into a poor routing but you can sense just sub, sort of sublimely a, a good routing but it's hard to ask players to talk about that or assess it or or judge it in a concrete way because they don't know what Thomas is talking about and you're talking about. They don't know all the little decisions that went into it. They, they'll never know what was sacrificed. In most cases, they'll never know what the outside influences were that that perhaps uh, made one part of the property off limits, um, what it would have cost to, to take the course in a certain direction. There are all these other factors that play into it that golfers will never know. So all they're left with at the end of it is their impression of the golf course that, that did get built. In that sense... It's all fair game. I mean, as consumers of the product, they can only judge what, what they experience and what they see. So it's sort of like an architectural insider's conversation that, that you can have with your clients or other d- developers or designers and say and talk about the, how difficult it was to arrive at the 18 greens and the 18 holes. And you're certainly welcome to share that publicly if you'd like to, but for the most part, those of us on the receiving end, we can only play the golf course and make our assessments based on the holes that were actually built. But I understand that that is an eternal frustration from, it was almost like a, like a movie, an actor, and you sign on for a film role and it sounds great. The, the, the screenplay is wonderful. All the pieces are in place and then things just fall apart during filming and post-production and editing. And the, once you get out of it, you have no control over it at that point, but it's not what you thought you were going to be doing when you went into it. And that's fair. Your point about you have presented 18 holes. Now it's fair game. (laughs) (laughs) You've signed off on this. You said it's good. Uh, If you didn't like the holes and you wanted to insert another hole, you should have done that before you allowed it to be fair game. I I like that, Derek. Uh, As a person who goes and see golf courses myself, uh, by other architects. Uh, it is fair game for criticism. It is fair game to wonder what if. But as Thomas says, sometimes you have to give up one for another. And in the end, when the course opens, you have come to a sense of, I'm done. We're going to let it open. We're going to go play it. Uh, enjoy it, and, and then I'll I'll wait for the criticism. If there are holes that I should have put in or not put in, I should have done this or done that. 
But those are all the other outlying factors that sometimes people don't see. Sure. As a consumer of, of golf courses, and not too many people listening to this have probably seen nearly as many golf courses around the country as you have, knowing that knowing the difficulty and, and how challenging it is to to produce a great routing, sometimes you've had amazing sites to work with, and other times you've, you're familiar with sites that have challenges. Are, does that make you more sympathetic to your judgment or feelings about how a golf course turns out, knowing that there were probably a lot of struggles to, for the course even to get to the point where it opened for you to see it in the first place? Absolutely. And, and, and I, I just went on a tour of about six or seven golf courses, eight golf courses in the last two weeks. And each one of them presented some really fantastic golf. And uh, some parts of the routing were, in my opinion, suspect. I don't know if I'd have gone down that route. But I also know that the factors, the factors that come in that people don't understand, ownership, budget, uh, a contractor who builds the golf course, shapers that are helping you, uh, those all play into into the into the uh, pieces of the puzzle, as Mm -hmm. Thomas says. And so I tried to be, I tried to be not one side or the other, but down the middle, because I know there was always one other hole they would have liked to have done. I just uh, texted Andy Staples. Uh, I I did a tour of a golf course at one of his golf courses. And I said, you know, I asked him a few questions and his answers were perfect. You know, I, I wanted to do this. Uh, but we did that. And I thought to myself, how interesting that each one of us has these dilemmas. You have the dilemma, Derek, uh, when you write a story. Uh, We as architects have a dilemma. Uh, People who play the golf course have dilemmas uh, as they experience golf architecture. And if you're a golf nerd, a golf geek who wants to find the, the ultimate answer to the question, we always search these things out. And so I try to be understanding, Derek, but as you know, and you just said to me, it's all it's all fair game. It is, it's always fair game in any, any kind of consumer, pro, when you're building a, a, a designing a product for consumption, it's all fair game. You, the, the point about Letting holes go and sacrificing holes, I think, is is worth talking about for a second. That I, every architect that I've ever spoken to acknowledges that you know sometimes when you're on a site, you get really attracted to certain parts of the property and, it, and the challenges to figure out how to use it. And sometimes the hole that you immediately see doesn't make it into the final product. No. How no. how big of a role in your experience does experience play? in knowing when to move on. I would imagine, and we don't see it too much anymore because the people that are actually routing new golf courses for the last 10 or 15 years is a small handful of designers. Very back small. In the, back in the 80s and 90s, everybody could route a golf course. Everybody was in the business was routing new golf courses. How big of a yeah. role does experience play in, in, in knowing when t- to let certain areas go and to adapt the routing? Because uh, I would imagine younger inexperienced designers might get locked into something that they'd be better off not letting go letting go go. (laughs) you gotta let it go and for me uh two things uh, two uh routings uh, come uh, to my uh forefront of my brain 
immediately. Apache Stronghold in Arizona mm-hmm. and Pacific Dunes in Bandon, Oregon. Each one of those routings could have gone in a different direction at a different point in time. And each one of them in, in a different setting, the desert setting and the ocean setting. And each one of them had holes that were never built that could have been built. And when you start to weigh in on, and you don't want to give a whole number like an nine, because you just become, uh, you just have to go with the gut. And I know helping with the routings on both Apache Stronghold and Pacific Dunes, there were certain areas that I, I really felt compelled that, that we needed to be a part of, different parts of the, of the dunes and different parts of the desert. But in the end, when the routing uh, is complete, the budgets are set, the timelines are done, uh, you have to have a good conscience and, and, and never say to yourself, what if? Because then you'll you'll never feel uh, that you gave it your best effort. And I thought both at Apache Stronghold and and Pacific Dunes, it was our best effort. Uh, yes, there were other holes out there. Uh, who's to say it would have been better or worse? You know, as you said, uh, we all judge things like that. But I do know there are s- certain locations in the desert of Arizona, and a few locations in the dunes of of, of Bandon that. I wonder, what if we would have gone down there? What if we would have played that par four down towards the ocean at Pacific Dunes and come back out of a different way? There are several routings at Pacific Dunes, several routings at, at Apache Stronghold. But in the end, your gut tells you this is the right move. And yes, it may have been a perfect photo, a perfect uh, picture photo for the magazines. But was it really the best hole there? And, and that's what you have to come to rest with. It's like life, all the decisions you don't make, you don't know how they would have turned out. <laughs> you know, you don't know. You know the you, you know, know the the consequences of those that you do. And that that's that's where your concern and, and <laughs> attention needs to be. And luckily we weren't hampered by real estate. I feel sorry for the people who are hampered by real estate, uh, both sides of the golf course or one side of the golf course. Uh they have they must become more more frustrated with with how the the setting is is laid out for them, and so I, I I tend to feel more sorry for the people who are are part of a out of a development. And people will say, "Well, Cypress Point is a development. Pebble Beach is a development. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those golf courses. They are absolutely correct. There's nothing wrong with them. But what if somebody at Cypress Point?" Or somebody at Pebble Beach could have bumped up the hill away from the ocean for one or two holes and then came back down. I wonder if Chandler Egan, uh, when they were laying out Pebble Beach, thought, you know, if we just went up this way, it'd be a better hole versus being linear along the ocean. And people say, what's wrong with being linear along the ocean? Maybe there was one or two holes that they missed and they wish they could have put in. The other side of that is, as I'm sure that any any architect, anybody in your field would the the goal is to have an unmolested, unencumbered property, and you find the best eighteen holes on it. Correct, correct. But it does, you know, there's got there's some comfort, even if it's re- reluctant comfort, reluctantly received comfort, to not have that dilemma. You know, you you you're working with a a, a real estate planner, and they say, you know, here are your hole corridors, 
And then, mm-hmm. you know, well, what, what the hell? It's out of your hands at that point. Let's just build the best yeah. holes that we can. And those yeah. courses rarely turn out to be anything significant. But it does, you know, at the end of the day, you're not scratching your head wondering, like, what if, you know, yeah. about the decisions that you made, like, should we have gone over here in the in this dune section or, you know, early or late right. or from this direction Correct. or that direction? So Correct. You, you actually feel like you left off the hook. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's the, that's been the case the majority of time, really. You can't really blame me. Uh, 50% of it is the development. It's not my fault. <laughs> Good point. Uh, one, one last thing I wanted to cover before we, we uh, get into the, the interview. Um, Thomas mentions the importance of looking at topography maps and finding yes. the connections and, and the best lay of the land here. And I thought that was a very interesting comment especially given the time it was written, it would seem to me that it has to be a, a, you know, a marriage of topography, but also walking the site. I would, I would have thought the advice would have been, you know, you have to step it off. You have to like feel it under your feet. You have to, you have to walk the transition from the green to where you want the next tee to be. But he also says the topography map is an, is important part of it. How important is that to you? I, I know that I know that everybody uses topography map and they're very useful, especially in the early phases, I think, of of, of a yeah. routing. But yeah. once you kind of dial it in, and I don't know if the, Thomas was saying this, you know, at what stage you do it, but uh, I would think that, that the topography map becomes less of a consideration the, the deeper that you get into it. I think the deeper you get into it, you're correct. But I will tell you that when I look at topo maps, I take a highlighting pin and I'll highlight a contour that, I want to follow, or I feel that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, 210 foot, 210 feet above sea level. That is a contour in a in a map that it can go from 200 to 300 feet, 200 feet above sea level, sea level to 300 feet above sea level. If I find a contour that has the most generous. Uh, 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 appeal for golf, I tend to highlight that contour with the highlight pin, and I follow that contour and see where it takes me. Uh, And so now I have a baseline for where that 210 elevation is. Uh, You know, if I get up to uh, 240, maybe I'll uh, pin it with a pink line Hmm. or a green line. And so I get to see the differences, and I start to go back to the holes that I can remember. Pasa Temple, number 11, has 100 feet of elevation change. Doesn't bother anybody. Uh, or uh, the, the two-foot uh, contours or the 10-foot contours. You start to f- follow with the highlight pin. That's how I do it. I don't know if other people do it. And once you get to visualize where that yellow line goes on the 210, it can take you to places that you remember what, uh, what you're, where you're at, the baseline. And then you have to start walking. And so that, for me, is how I do it. I wonder if other architects do the same thing. Wow, that's interesting. Very interesting. Well, that's going to be, should be a point of this conversation. We're going to talk to Rob Collins. And, you know, Landman was the first 18-hole golf course that Rob and, and Tad King built, uh, completed, and routing this massive property with big undulations was a big part of it. So I'm curious to know what the routing process was like for Rob. How important was the topography map? How important, what did he find more useful? This is the first, you know, 18 hole course he actually routed on the ground. I know they did. He's done a lot of like really cool uh, paper routings in the, over the past, you know, 10 years, but 
being on the ground, doing it live, what was his methodology? Was it a combination of walking, map reading? Uh, did he prefer one to the other? What can he uh, take forward in, into his future projects? So uh, we'll definitely, hopefully, get into talking about the routing of Landman and other golf courses. And when you talk about uh, constraints, you're not going to go over a map. But if you go through the valleys, you can assume that the contour map is about the same, going through the valleys. Uh, uh, you're not going to abruptly go over a mountain to get to the next valley. And so <clears throat> for, for, for Landman, uh, it was, to me, I, I appears to be wide open uh, so that he could see these large landforms. Sometimes you have trees that block you and you don't get to see the landforms. And so you have to go back to the topo map to get a base reference for uh, the 210 or 220. So he had an open view, I believe. I'll be curious to see how he approached that, uh, him and, and uh, uh, Tad King, is that right? Tad King, Rob Collins, how they approached that. Did the ownership have any uh, input in, you know, I don't want you to go there. I prefer you not go there. I'll be curious how that worked out. Excellent. Well, let's find out. We're going to bring on Rob right now. So let's talk to him, Jim. Here's Rob Collins. Let's do it. That's a cool thing, the Palmetto Bluff little little golf course. You I'm know, like I, super excited about yeah, that. I saw that golf course shortly after it opened in, I don't know, two, early 2000s. And at, at that, I remember at that time they were talking about building a second course. They, were, they were, thought they might go right into it, and I think they were talking about Doak doing it. And then – yep. You know, yep. one thing after another happens and 20 years yep. go by and they finally... Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah finally, finally. And um, I don't know if you saw part of the news was that um, there's a, a core Crenshaw, New 18, that, that they're kind of going through the permitting on right down there as well. So mm-hmm. that'll be a neat... Um, it'll be fun to see that come along. And they're, they're kind of fast-tracking ours because they're... <laughs> they've got a lot of pressure from the membership to get get more golf built and stuff so yeah and it looks like so you've got a pretty nice piece of land there yeah it's it's about 50 acres and one of the things that's really interesting about it is it's um <clears throat> unlike a lot of sites in the low country you can actually cut quite a bit um you can cut up to we could probably cut 12 13 feet down and we actually have to do that because there's an inland waterway that borders the left and, and bottom of the of the site that's going to be at a ten and a half, and the the you know natural grade is around a twenty five. And what what you know the land planners and the owners do not want is to have a fourteen foot bank along the <laughs> edge of the inland waterway where boats are going to be going. So you can you know they want to be able to see into the golf course. So we got to yeah. chop this thing way down. Um, so we can get it kind of moving a little bit and do some fun stuff. So, yeah, it's a, that's such a, a neat place though. That's a cool resort and you know, it is, it's on the other side of Hilton head. So, you know, I don't, unless you're going to that specific development, you probably don't know it's there, but it's a really cool place. It is cool. I had fun playing the Nicholas course. That's the first time I've played it, uh, played it recently and really enjoyed it. I think it that's, I think that's one of their, some of their best work. That I've seen. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Jim, have yeah. you seen May River? Yeah, I did. Uh, I think we talked about it a little bit, Derek. That uh, when I saw the bunker in the middle of fairway, somebody said it was Jack Nicholas's design. I said, "No way." Yeah, 
(laughs) There's no chance. And I come to find out it is. And I thought it was one of the more entertaining golf courses uh, in that area. Loved the greens. Uh, Thought it was cool. I agree with you both. Yeah, it was really well done. And they, um, one thing that's kind of funny is uh, I think that might've been, this is what I was told anyway, but that might've been the first course that Jack did after Sabonic. So I think he kind of had a new way of looking at things a little bit. So, we'll never know, Rob. We'll never wh- know. Whether or not that's true, it's a good story, okay? <laughs> it's you know a good story, saying? and I think let's, let's have that be the narrative going going from this point on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, – I agree with you both. May uh, Good golf course. Really yeah. good. Well, speaking of speaking of fun golf courses, uh, Rob, Jim and I have both recently been out to Landman, and we wanted to talk to you about that because I came away right. thinking it was, it was a blast to play. And, you know, it's sort of one of those places where – it's if you can't have fun playing a golf course on that with that kind of size and land movement and the, and and big greens and all the all the 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 heaving earth and watching the ball move then well I don't want to say I don't all I would say is like you know there are plenty of other golf courses in the world that you can play where you know you can hit it down the middle of the fairway and that's the shot but that golf course really kind of opens the it opens your the horizons literally and, and figuratively of the way to play golf. But, and as we get into that, I would, I would be very curious to know your initial impressions of that landscape when you first saw it. And I, I know the owner, Will Anderson, his family owns the land and have for generations. And it was kind of his idea to develop into a golf course. And, and he spoke to a few other architects and asked them to take a look at the land and didn't get a positive response from the other people that he spoke to. Uh, and then finally called you and, and I think you were obviously interested. So tell us about the impressions that you had for that land and your first interactions with land band. So we got a phone call, um, or an email and then, and then phone calls uh, from Will Anderson around May of 2019. And, um, Tad and I went out there and we pretty immediately hit it off with him and we met him down at the old Dane, his nine hole golf course, which is a really neat golf course down in the Valley. And and he said, you know, we're thinking about doing something here. I, I want to show you this piece of land first. And so Tad and I looked at it and thought, wow, this is a really cool little nine hole golf course. I, I don't, don't change this thing, you know, <laughs> leave it the way it is. Right. He goes, okay, well, let's go look at this other piece of land I've got. And he said, uh, this is down by the Missouri river and it was on, had some kind of Sandy dune like formations and it was a real neat piece of ground, but it was low and Tad immediately recognized that if we were to build a golf course there, it was going to have water table issues and, Sure enough, 2019 wound up being a flood year and we would have spent, you know, half the year would have been underwater and, but it was a cool site. And it was funny. We, during the drive around with Will kind of leading up to going up to the site where Landman is, we were saying, well, you know, let's take, take us up top, take us up top there to see Landman. And that, that kind of became a, a, a slow or up top to see that, that site. And that be, that's become a slogan for Landman. And we pulled up right up there by the clubhouse and Tad and I just could not believe what we were looking at. I mean, it was, it was all inspiring. And what's funny about Landman from like a overall view from, from a distance, you know, if you look at an aerial photo of it, you know, the, the drone photos, it's, it's this all inspiring landscape, 
but what you quickly realize, you know, riding in a truck or walking around a little bit that in its natural state, it was not suitable for golf, Mm -hmm. um, because it was so severe. Um, and so, you know, it was so severe that, I mean, they couldn't really even use it for farming. Is that the story? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's a good point. They had it in this, this thing called CRP, um, which is basically the government was, you know, paying them to, to, you know, grow some native plant materials out there to control erosion. And, um, they had tried farming it and thankfully Will's granddad had removed all the trees off of it back in the seventies and eighties. So it was this beautiful, wide open prairie, um, that, that kind of had this, this really drastic Nebraska bold landscape look to it, but it was like, okay, well, you know, it's going to, it's going to take some work to get it to where it needs to be to actually play golf on it and being able to walk it and that the golf course being playable were two of the most important things to us. And, um, but I mean, first impressions, our jaw was on the, the floor and we thought, you know, finally, finally, we, we've gotten our big opportunity. And when you mean by a big opportunity, did you, were you afraid uh, or were you, uh, uh, were you energized by Will's passion for the land, uh, the owner's passion for the land and the size of, of the features because nobody else had built anything like that recently? We were fully energized by it. We, I mean, we immediately recognized, you know, I use the word big opportunity, but it, it was, uh, aside from that, it was a unique opportunity, Jim, because it was so different than, than some of the other, you know, sites for some of the really compelling modern golf courses. It was, it, we both felt like it needs, a, it needs a lot of work to get it there, but once it's there, it's going to be something that that's its own unique thing. And, um, we were very energized by that. We, again, we hit it off really well with, with Will and his family right away. And one thing that's interesting is I, I came to learn later is, is our relationship with Will developed that he kind of had in his back pocket, that, that that was his dream site for a golf course. You know, he had been dreaming of a golf course there for, let's call it 20 years since he was in high school. And, um, he did not let on to that. He, he, he kept his cards close. We had no idea that that was his favorite site. So when, when Will saw our reaction and, you know, I was talking to Will not long ago and he said, my eyes were, <laughs> you know, bugging out of my head with, with excitement. So I think when Will saw the genuine excitement and enthusiasm from Tad and myself, um, that went a long way with him because he he wanted to have somebody out there working on it who who was buying in to the the possibilities of that site, not not in a defensive posture. You know, it's easy to give owners lip service, Rob, uh, in order to uh, find out more about the infra, uh, about the uh, the property. And what I mean by service is I mean that uh, you tend to be very cautious of what you say. You tend to be very, uh, uh, I, as as much as the owners are holding it close to their chest, uh, when I look at a site, uh, I'm careful what I say because I don't want to uh, sound like I'm too excited or not excited at all. But you immediately went to, this is unbelievable. And as you started to walk the property, do you think that you may have uh, overstepped yourself 
or each time you went around every big hill, every big roll, you thought it was going to get better and better? No, we, we never, we never felt like we were over our skis with it. We, we, we just kept seeing one incredible opportunity after another. It was just like, I I can't believe that I get to do this. I mean, it was just a total gift. Um, I mean, I'm just feel forever grateful to the Andersons and to our team. I mean, we were fortunate to God. We had a great team out there. A lot of really talented people helped us out. And, um, landman to me, you know, Sweden's Cove for a lot of reasons is, you know, feels like a family member. Um, I mean, it's a, it's not a, you know, it's, it's a place, but I'm just so attached to that place. I can just feel it when I'm out there. Sure. I I feel the same thing when I'm out at Landman. I mean, it just is, I just, I feel this deep, deep connection to it. And, and, a lot of that too, you know, aside from the golf course is probably the Anderson family. I mean, they, they feel like, you know, family at this point. And, um, it was just a kind of a dream project for us really all the way around. Did they hand you a topo map or did you say, (laughs) I don't need a topo map. I just got to go walk. Yeah, exactly. No, we didn't look at a topo map. And, um, (laughs) while the golf, while the golf course is 550 acres, uh, or pardon me, while the site is 550 acres, you know, one thing that I've kind of seen quoted from time to time about it, it's a bit of a, a misconception is the golf course is not 550 acres. The site is 550 acres. I mean, that would be like saying, you know, Sand Hills is a 10,000 acre golf course. It's, it sits on 10,000 acres, but it's, you know, Landman sits on 550 acres, but, but the, um, you know, we have about 80, 80 something acres of turf and, um, you know, those, those massive greens out there. So, um, all in all, we probably ended up shaping, you know, a couple hundred acres worth of ground to, to kind of make it work. Um, but, but to your, to your question, Jim, I mean, it was just total field job. I mean, I, I did draw a plan and one thing that was good for us about Landman um, that some of the other, modern courses, you know, maybe had a hard time with it was when, when you have such a blank slate, sometimes it's hard to know where to start and finish and Landman, We knew where we had to start and finish. I mean, it was, it was obvious. And that's that place where we pulled up to where one and 18 are. And so that made it, um, that made the routing process, um, kind of fall into place a lot easier. If we had been wandering around out there wondering where to start and finish, it could have, it could have been much more difficult, but it was just, like you said, around every turn, there was just a new opportunity. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the when we routed it, that was a magical time too. I can tell you that uh, I wish I could go play golf at Landman with Rob Collins and Tad King, because every time I came off a green, I went down a, a, a hole. I came up another roll I peeked around a corner, looked over the hill. I saw endless, endless uh, ideas that must have been going through their head. And I, I got to ask this question to you, if you don't mind, Rob. Of course. When you, when you started to build the greens, were the greens, as you know, some of them are really, really big, bigger than, than I thought some of the biggest greens we built, built at Old Mac. Uh, these greens are even bigger, Old McDonald in, in Oregon. Did you do the greens for fun or for scale? 
Well, I, I, I think it's it's both, um, but there's another element too, which is playability. And um, one thing we quickly learned about that site is that it just dwarfs everything perception-wise. Okay, and and one one example that I go to when I think about the greens at Landman is the fifth hole. Okay. When we sighted that tee and that green, really nice par three across a, a chasm. As we started to get into the shaping of it, I thought, you know, let's put a 10, 12,000 square foot green up there. And that's a big green. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, is that in that landscape, a 10, 12,000 square foot green looks unplayable and and what i what tad and i really wanted to be careful against and, and really guard against is we did not want to give people the perception of unplayability standing on the tee and, and to feel defeated i mean if you stood on the tee at landman with a 15 20 mile an hour wind which is common and you had a 10 12 000 square foot green out there which is under normal circumstances a large green you would feel defeated before you even pulled the club back. And so as we started shaping it, I mean, it's like, my God, this thing is gigantic. I mean, it's a 25,000 square foot green. It's huge. But that's what that landscape, in our opinion, needed um, for for playability, for fun, for for shot-making interest, um, and and also to to tie in and and fit. Um, You know, I, I can see where, you know, if you played Landman one time, not you necessarily, but a person, a human being went out to Landman, some of the green sizes may feel gratuitous, but that was never um, a part of it. I mean, it was all, this is what this land needs, in our opinion. We, we felt like, you know, Jim, you know this, I mean, when you go on a on a, on a project, I mean, the first thing you got to ask yourself is, you know, what's the question here? What am I being asked? And, and you got to identify that question. And then you got to figure out an answer. And, um, at Landman, the question, one of the big questions was, is how, how do you handle this scale? And, and then, and then how do you make it work in terms of actual playability and, and, and then one's perception of it, because, Landman to this day, as many times as I've been out there, it, I've been there hundreds and hundreds of times, and it, it still warps my perception, how I perceive the, the environment. And it, it's um, it's a it's just a very unique and almost a strange landscape. And, it, and we had to do things that were out of the ordinary to, to make it all work. I agree totally because when you look at the land is it's no different than having an ocean as the background. The ocean goes on forever. I totally agree with your assessment of the fifth green. When you look through that green, you don't the next stop is the clubhouse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it, the mean, next stop is the clubhouse, and that's a long way away. It's so, a long way away. And it's you know and you know, I like for people to be playing golf. I don't like people to be in Tad's the same way. We don't want them playing in the weeds, looking for, <laughs> looking right. for a ball. You know, you, 
let's get them out there, get, get them out on the turf. You're, you may not like your shot, but at least you're going to find it and, and, and have some, something interesting on, on the next, next shot. But, um, you know, it, 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 you can get some long putts out there for sure. No question. But the way I look at it is, is, well, if, <laughs> you know, okay, maybe you got a hundred, hundred, 120, 130 foot putt, but yeah you know, you're going to have a tough chip if we didn't make the green that big, so, <laughs> you know, and I just, I just kept wondering myself for, for myself is uh, the fun factor was way up, but he had to match the scale. So I thought I would break it down that simply. And Derek, I know it's not that simple, but it's the one place in t- and Rob, you just said, it's what makes this, this golf course so unique. And I, I don't know that I mean, I don't know that there's anything quite like it anywhere that I know of anyway, but when you're standing on the fifth tee and you're looking at that green, I mean, I think Will and I had a conversation. He said, well, how big, how big do you think that green is? And Hmm. a lot of players don't know, you know, square footage of greens, the, you know, the average green in America square footage wise is probably five to 6,000 square feet. It's just kind Mm -hmm. of an average generic sized green. And I knew I could immediately tell that it was a big green. And I, I think I, I probably guessed like 12,000, you know, 14,000, because that's as big as my brain can, can go as far as square footage on a green. And when he told me it was, you know, the size of a 25,000 square feet, I mean, it, it, it was, it made sense because it didn't look like it was egregious. It didn't look like it was too big standing on that tee for that shot. And then you get up on the green and you start walking around and then, then that's when you finally comprehend how big that green needed to be to fill up that massive amount of horizon space and the shot coming into it as well. But it must also be noted that, you know, not every green at Landman is like that. The the 12th green is a, is a really nice little green that par three benched into the hill, you know, mm-hmm. 16 green is, is a very nicely proportioned green. It makes a lot of sense for that hole. It's kind of a, a blind shot, second shot up there. And it's just, it's, it's shelved into that side slope. And the second green is another one that's, you know, of human in human proportion. So it, it, it does depend on the location of these greens that they're, they're not all, you know, acres in size, but what I was going to get, go back to is this thing you said a minute ago, uh, Rob, that you couldn't go into a project, the construction of this project like this in a defensive posture. It did require, I think a lot, when a lot of people play it now, they just assume that a lot of that's natural and, and they're playing over natural contours and it was just a matter of like finding these holes. We're sort of programmed in the modern era to to, to really want golf courses to be minimally derived from the, the, the earth and the topography. But uh, I know you had to really work that site from a construction perspective. This, it's it's in your background, it's in Tad's background to to. to be constructive on, but it had been a while, I, I think maybe since you'd tackled a project that demanded this amount of earth moving. I wonder if you could talk about how you approached that aspect of it. And did that part cause you any trepidation or was it like getting on a, on a bike and, and riding it one that you hadn't been on for a while? Well, that's a, a great question, Derek. Thank you. Um, I, there wasn't, um, there was not trepidation. I mean, credit to Tad for, um, you know, setting up the program and, and kind of knowing how to, how to make this work and, and credit to our incredibly talented team for putting it together. Um, but, um, you know, Landman, the goal at the end of the day 
that Landman was to move not too much dirt, not too little dirt, but just the right amount to make it look and feel like it had been there for a very long time. I mean, we wanted people to come out eventually. And, you know, as the natives grow up, I think this will be more and more the case, but we wanted people to come out and have this impression, like just, wow, they just found this land and just kind of routed this golf course in there. So, you know, one thing that's been thrown about a little bit in in our golf course architecture world is the, the concept of, maximalism and i mean these are are names that have different meanings to different people and i think i've you know heard you know landman referred to as a maximalist project and i don't know that i agree with that i wouldn't really because it's uh, I, i i agree i mean it's like we weren't maximalist to me my when when i hear the word maximalist i think of massive amounts of earth that are moved maybe somewhat gratuitously to achieve something that's probably a little bit contrived. I mean, that, that, that would be kind of how I perceive the word maximalism. Yeah, or something that is it, so incongruous with that, the, the surrounding nature, the surrounding that's a, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, exactly. So Landman was the opposite of that. Okay. Or, or Landman is not that. Landman was, let's move exactly the right amount of dirt to make let's let's take the first hole for instance okay let's make it where you can walk off the first tee you walk down a slope you walk back up you know you're a little bit down a little bit back up but completely playable completely walkable you know but but looks good to the eye and tie ties back into the natural grade and we had the benefit of having this 550 acre parcel where we could go way out into the natives and and tie in and make these tie-ins work. And I think that's one thing where our our team did a really good job. So that as the native grasses grow back, you you, you have a little bit of a hard time telling, you know, where the dirt was moved. They did a great job of what, what we call, you know, hiding the fill. And, um, and so like number one, for instance, we chopped at the landing area, probably 30 feet out that was another 30 feet high the green site was quite a bit higher than, than where it is um you know the, the the hills walking walking up to the first green i mean it was it was a, a heart attack hill i mean it was a probably a three to one slope four to one i mean it was really steep it was it was it, it was unwalkable and, and now that i'm on this tangent you know, Ron Witten, when he toured the site, said something very profound to me that I hadn't thought about, which was, he goes, you know, what's one thing that's really neat about this place is this is a golf course. It's a stroll in the park around a site that you would, would never just go out and walk around. Okay. You wouldn't just seek that site out and go for a stroll because it would be too difficult, but because there's a golf course there now, you can interact with this, this site in a way that, that you wouldn't have been able to before. And um, so, you know, it was basically the goal was to just move, move what we needed to. And um, in relation to some of our other projects, I mean, I'll bring up Sweetens Cove. It was, I always say it was the opposite of the, the Sweetens Cove question, the Sweetens Cove problem. I mean, Sweetens was on this dead flat tabletop piece of ground and, 
you know, I'll be the first to say that Sweden's has this uh, kind of neon sign in the desert, <laughs> flashing light, mm-hmm. going yeah. jump, <laughs> jumping up and down. Like, look at me, look at me. I mean, that 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 was intentional. That was part of the problem. That, part of the question at Sweden's was like how are we going to get people to come play a nine hole golf course in the middle of nowhere? Well, I mean, you got to pump everything up. You got to make it big and bold and different. That was, that was our opinion going into that project we had built everything up at Landman, We were doing the opposite. We were taking everything down. Everything was getting chopped down. I said to Rob, I said to Will, when we were going up the 11th hole, I said, man, they did a great job here. And I thought to myself, how would I have made the tie-ins as you kind of cut through that little roll in the fairway? How would I have made the tie-ins? And I thought that everything you did made it feel comfortable going up and over. Uh, was that a problem hole for you or really just a connector to the next two or three holes playing downhill? Well, 11 um... – we came out of what we call cornfield corner, you know, the big punch yes. bowl and, and 11, 11 originally had a T kind of sitting up high. And, um, I remember being out there with Jimmy Craig and, and he and I were talking about it and it kind of just evolved to where we were going to put the T down a little bit lower. And, um, it, 11 originally before any site work was done, there kind of was this nice little broadish ridge that, that ran up that left-hand side and, that, and the, 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 the layup area to the left, which is so broad, um, you know, really almost sits at, at natural grade. Um, I was up there with one day with Will Anderson. He's like, God, look at, look how much rooms over here. I was like, man, alive. That, 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 that's what kind of gave us the idea to kick that fairway so far up on the left. You know, if, if you wanted to hit the layup, but um, it, it wasn't really a problem. What the issue was is on the tee shot prior to construction, there was just there was not quite enough room on the right hand side. I didn't want people to be just off in la la land on the right. We wanted to make sure there was plenty of room out there. And we actually, I'll never forget this. Tad and I were out there, and it was too skinny. And we 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 were working with. Um, John Ellsworth and, and Mark Berger at that point. And, and we said, guys, let's, let's keep, let's keep on moving this. You know, we got to get this thing wider over here, make it playable on that right-hand side. And I, I, those two guys worked really hard on that hole and and they crushed it. I mean, I, I, I love the way that thing ties in and it, and it just kind of, it fits in now. And and that was, that was a good decision and, and good work by them to, spend an extra two or three days there making sure that was done right. I, I really did like it. I told Will uh, after we played eight, nine, and ten, uh, I said, I, I just could, let's go back to eight. I want to go play eight again. <laughs> yeah. I, could, I could have stayed in that corner all day. It's, it's attractive. And I told him it makes sense that it's the farthest away from the clubhouse. You have to yeah. work to get there. But yeah. I could I could have hung out down there for a long, long time. Yeah, I think nine nine might be the hole that I was most immediately attracted to. I love that, Derek. I mean, I think it's cool that that you say that because you you guys may have heard this story 
elsewhere, but I'll, I'll relay it again. Um, Tad and I did the routing and, um, we were pretty proud of ourselves. We thought we'd come up with some really cool holes and we, we were going, it was just like one neat hole after another, it just kind of all fell out and we kind of get around towards the end and we start looking down at the note card. We were writing our holes down on, we realized we had designed a 16 hole golf course. <laughs> <laughs> and so and we, uh, I'll never forget. I called Will Tad was standing there and I said, Hey, um, that bean field over there, um, do you guys own that? And he's like, Oh yeah. I said, well, can we put golf over there? Oh yeah. yeah that's <laughs> it. Typical yeah. Will. <laughs> and uh, and we said, it said, uh, okay, thanks. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how nine and 10, that's how cornfield corner came into existence. But, um, so it's, I, I really like hearing people's different opinions of like what, what hole they like the most. And I think it's interesting kind of getting in people's heads of like, what, why does someone like eight or why does someone like 16 or nine or whatever? And, um, you know, nine was, um, I'm glad you liked it and, and I like it too. Um, and I, and it has been a popular hole, but that was one that took a little bit of, it wasn't quite as obvious. We had to kind of, I just wasn't, you know, wasn't quite as sure about it, I guess I'd say initially. And so the, the fact that it turned out that well, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. I mean, we did have the benefit of that neat ridge coming in at the green and it's, well, let's wrap a, let's wrap a bunk or sorry, let's wrap the green around that ridge and that spine will kind of define that grain a little bit. Um, it all, and Jeff Bradley built that really cool bunker. Um, and it just worked out. And there's, there's something just, I don't know, golf instinctively alluring about that, that corn row that goes hard down the right. And it's just a straight shot. You know, you could envision that being a, a rail line or an old fence or something that you might encounter in the, in the old world. Totally. And, and I love how, you know, a lot of really good golf courses have different areas that, that, that you explore. It's not 18 holes that are all the same. I mean, it, or the, in the same environment and, you know, you're weaving in and out of different parts and getting out there. I mean, it is the farmer's golf club to get out into like the middle of an active farm is really, really cool. So I'm, I'm glad that, that it worked out and that we put golf out there. And, you know, one thing I like about Landman, I mean, people talk about how quote unquote wild it is and bold and everything, but you know, there's a lot of quiet moments out there too. And there, there's an ebb and a flow to it. And, um, and, and I think nine does a real good job of kind of taking the temperature down a little bit. I mean, yeah. you, you need that out there. I mean, you can't just have 18, just, <laughs> you know, holes like number, so you can't have 17, you can't have 18 number 17. No, you, you know what I'm saying? Okay. You can't do that. Uh, and so it'd be possible. Uh, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's fun to have the ups and downs and, and nine's kind of a nice chill hole, you know, it, but strategic and a, a, a good hole, but it's, it kind of, it's nice to take the temperature down. I mean, eight's a, son of a bitch sitting up on that hill. It's, I love it. I mean, I think it's a great hole, but <laughs> it's, it's nerve wracking. You know, it's like getting chased by Michael Myers or something. I mean, you know, bad things can happen. So it's nice to have a little bit of a dip in the ups and downs. Yeah, of it. And, you, and you, you're 
feedback about how, you know, every, everybody who plays it that you've spoken to probably has, you know, an, another moment or, or a green or a hole that, that they respond to the most. And A, that's, I'm sure that's gratifying. And isn't that though, the sign of, of kind of this architectural moment that we're in where there's in the best cases that the opportunity to build, take a side and build the best 18 golf holes. And it's, it's really the death of the the signature hole era, I would like to think that we're mm. that that was something from the past because so many projects, yeah. you know, in the in yeah. the past eras, you know, you're lucky if you get one hole or two holes that are really outstanding, and and every player is going to come back and say, you know, oh, what's your favorite hole? Oh, it was 14 out on the river. You know, what a yeah. you know what a exactly. un, yeah. unfulfilling round of golf that is <laughs> if everybody's only playing out to this one favorite moment and then they have to kind of endure the rest <laughs> of the golf course. So yeah. you get sites like Landman, and it's just like. You know, everybody it's everybody has their own can take away from it what something different and it means just as much to them. And it's at a different point on the property for everyone. I love that. I mean, Mark Berger, who who shaped, I think, uh, gosh, probably 12 or 13 or so of the greens out there. He and I would just constantly laugh, like after we'd get a hole put together, like, OK, that's my new favorite. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'd almost feel like you were, you know cheating on a significant other or something like when, when all of a sudden the seventh became your favorite hole when number five used to be your favorite hole. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was, you were picking favorites or something. I mean, it was, but it was each, each time we, we, he and I just kind of chuckled about that. Each one had its own little hook and, and that was a fun thing. Rob, I stood up on many of the holes out there and wondered if they'd have gone this way or that way. Are there any holes out there? Thomas talks about it in his book, Golf Architecture in America, that sometimes you have to give up one for the other. Are there any holes out there that you gave up to get one, to get to the end, to complete the routing that you wish you would have built? Gosh, I mean, there, there are, are some, some, some fantastic holes out there. Um, you know, one thing that was given some consideration was – kind of keeping going up the valley on number three a little bit farther and maybe making five a, a drivable par four. And we were kind of mulling some things over there. I mean, there's some really neat stuff over there, but um, I can't sp speak specifically necessarily about anything that I wish we had done. Although there are so many different neat holes out there. I mean, I walk around, I'm like, well, you could build a really cool hole there, <laughs> you know, but I was so pleased with the way the, the routing came out and how, and Tad was too, in, in the, the, you know, it's got, it's got variety and length and direction of in each class of hole and the threes, fours and fives all, you know, kind of going in different directions, different lengths, ask different questions. Um, and then we had some highlights that we knew we needed to get to like number 12 was the most obvious golf hole out there prior to construction. We discovered number seven, which was also, as it turns out, a very obvious hole. We didn't have to move much there. Um, and then, and then we kept seeing this gigantic crater off in the distance, um, where we really wanted to do the Sitwell green and, so those were kind of some parts and then we were just kind of trying to connect the dots to those. And, you know, I, 
I, I wish I could say I had like a certain hole exactly. Oh man, I wish we could have done that, but I don't necessarily have that, but there are, I know exactly what you're getting at because, you know, to your eye, <laughs> I mean, you could come off the back of number five and keep going that way. Or, I mean, there's so many things, so many places where you could have turned left or turned right, but it just kind of worked out the way it did. And for me, Rob, and for uh, many uh, architects, designers, builders, uh, construction guys, you always wonder what if, and uh, Derek told me, uh, once you open up the 18, it's all fair game. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. that uh, people are going to uh, wonder, uh, wonder out loud sometimes. And as I said in Thomas's book, he says, you're going to find some ones that you have to have, and you're going to have to give up some. And I always wonder the ones that you gave up. We gave up yeah. a lot of holes at several of the greatest properties that, that I've been involved with. We gave up oh, some I holes. I can imagine. I mean, you stand on the back of the fourth green at Sand Hills, and um, you wonder how they resisted the temptation to go left. How they right. didn't go straight. That's go correct. straight or go left. And or, I mean, or straight I, off I love of the, nine I, number two, I, just kind of keep going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I love the I love the fifth hole at Sand Hills. I mean, I love everything about that golf course. But it's like, I mean, that's the ultimate example to me, where there's like, oh my gosh, I mean, there's so many, so many just amazing holes out there. I mean, it, you know, particularly on some of the, the, the great sites, you know, definitely in some of the ones you've had the chance to work on, I can only imagine, God, you guys must've just, <laughs> um, you know, Landman was also a little bit more, I'm just thinking about this as we're talking about, it. Landman was also in some ways probably more constrained than some of those other really good modern sites. And that, you know, once, yeah, you could go this way and that way, but once we kind of had this path and this sequence, it was, I don't know how to say it. It was almost like it was preordained or just, it, it just kind of worked. I mean, it, um, maybe the severity of Landman made it where it was not quite as obvious as like a sand hills where there's just golf holes everywhere. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And that's a fair uh, that's a fair assessment because we have to come to peace with ourselves that you did everything you've thought about this you laid awake at night you fretted you argued uh, you, oh yeah you stood your ground when people challenged you that it was the right thing to do and I can tell you that uh, for me the fun factor was way up the uh, sequence of holes was varied and. I just thought to myself, what did they give up? Because this is pretty damn good. Maybe, maybe they nailed it right out of the sheet. It's a, it's a great question. That's something after this conversation, I mean, I'll probably spend a lot of time think, thinking about that, but um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, a golf, any golf project is like I said, you know, ask you a certain question. You've got to figure out the answers and, um, with Landman, one thing that, that I found and Tad found to be particularly important was, you know, the ebb and flow of it. And, um, you know, for me, um, the 12th hole is, is a real high point. Um, I'm, I'm very enamored by that hole. It was just such an obvious golf hole. I mean, the, the green is built at the grade that, or on, on the original grade. 
Um, Jeff built those amazing bunkers all around it. Um, and you can see 13 holes, kind of a high point. And, and the 13th hole to me is like the ninth hole, a little bit of a just take the temperature down a little bit type of hole. We wanted, and it's one of the more calm greens on the golf course. It's it's a neat green. It's sort of deceptive in the same way that some of the greens at Lookout Mountain are, where you're like, think it's going to break left, but it breaks right because there was so much fall in the, in the natural grade. But, um, you know, Landman, with all the drama of that site, it really, really required from us this mega just bang, bang, bang finish. That's That was our opinion. You know, you had to finish with with like kind of the grand finale fireworks going off Fourth of July thing. I mean, that, that's what that site asked. That's what it wanted. And so, fourteen to eighteen, you know, kind of keeping that pace going was um, was an important thing. And I think I think the guys did a great job with that. And particularly not to lose that pace after seventeen. Um, I, I think that's one of my favorite things about it too, is how that sequence and the, the grand finale nature of the finish. That's something I'm real proud of. Rob, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about how um, Mark Berger shapes uh, uh, many of the greens out there. You also had, you, you know, you had an A-list of shapers, including you mentioned Jim Craig, Dave Axlin was there for a little while. Trevor Dormer was there, John Ellsworth, probably missing some people. And then Jim, I'd like to get your opinion on this too. And your experiences, does there get to a point when you're, when you're, you know, you're, since you're not working off a set of uh, blueprints that were drafted in an office, so you have creativity in the field, does it get to a point when when either Mark is thinking, okay, I'm on to the next screen, I've got to do something different, so he pushes it a little harder, and then Trevor comes over and sees what he's doing, and so on his greens, he's like, okay, I've got to push this a little harder. Does it ever get to a point where there's gamesmanship or the feel that you have to, you know, you, you have to push out in, in, a, in a new direction? Because the, you know, the greens are huge out there. Even the small greens are, are fairly large, but there's there also is some very, very dramatic contour. And Rob, you and I kind of texted about the, the fifth green and, and, and how that works or, you know, how, it, how it, in my opinion, I was concerned about ways it might not work. The Sitwell Green mm-hmm. is on another level, but is does gamesmanship or upsmanship uh, ever play a, a, a factor in it when you have multiple multiple crews on site, multiple individuals and personalities, and they're kind of looking around and seeing what else is happening on other corners of the golf course? I think that um, that is definitely something that can happen i've witnessed it before um has happened um i will say at landman i feel like we just kind of hit this sweet spot of like just a super cohesive crew and there there wasn't oh my god he just did this over there i've got to do this kind of thing you know um i I, but it's a it's a fair point i mean i'm sure jim and all his experiences has witnessed that um but there wasn't too much of that going on. I mean, if anything, it was, you know, how, how do we collectively make each hole fit and work and be distinctive in its own way? Um, one example I'll give is working with, with Trevor, uh, who's, you know, super talented. We all know that, um, on number four and originally number four was planned to be the smallest green on the course, just a little 2,500, 3000 square foot little shelf up on top where the pinnable area is. And 
he and I just kept riffing off of each other. And the next thing you know, that's got that big panhandle that comes out and it kind of attaches to the bunkers over there. And, um, none of that panhandle will ever have a pin on it. And, you know, I've heard some people say, well, gosh, I wish they, you know, would have made that pinnable. And it's like, well, if it had just been Kentucky bluegrass, you wouldn't have said that because the green would have been over there. You never, right. <laughs> you never yeah. would have come to you that that was the green. It, it, what, what I like about four is that it's, um, it's part intimidation and, and part invitation. Uh, in that if you hit the sweet spot up on the, the high left side and drive over that bunker, because we expanded that green out so much it, to me, in my mind, it makes me want to play that shot on the ground to that back shelf where, where truly where the green is. I mean, the green is, is much, the actual green is much smaller than the, the mown green. Um, and, and so it's an invitation to play maybe a shot you wouldn't have played otherwise because you can get it, get it up and get it on that super short green grass and, and let it release and let it roll. So that was kind of the, the, the thinking there, but that's, you know, that, that's an example of one of the more eccentric things on the course. Um, and I wanted to bring that up because to your point, I mean, I could understand where somebody you know, maybe had played landman and think, well, gosh, what happened on that fourth screen? It sure seems like somebody was trying to outdo somebody, but it really, that was just two guys and, and Tad, um, you know, bouncing ideas off of one another and, uh, you know, something coming out of the dirt. And that, it, and that's what I would say overarching wise to your question is it was just very much of a collaborative effort. I mean, all good golf courses are a collaboration. It's not just one, one or two people, um, there's a lot of very, very talented hands that touched that place that made it what it is. I said the fifth green earlier, but I, you're, I, it was mentioned, I meant the fourth green, which you just explained. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For, for my part, Derek, you don't want to stifle creativity. Uh, having creative people around you, uh, wanting to interject their ideas. They've sat there all day looking at, you spent an hour there because you were on a different part of the property uh, doing what you do, and you come back and and you're working with with excavator, dozer, uh, small skid steer, sand pro. You don't want to stifle creativity, but some somebody has to make the decision uh, that that's enough. Uh, maybe that's a little too much, but you never want to stifle creativity. But I do have to ask this question to Rob: Who shaped for uh, who shaped fifteen green? Whose idea was that? Well, that was that was our idea um, to uh, have a sort of Baritz-ish type of type of green in there, and uh, a guy named Gus Grantham, who was our uh, our lead shaper at uh, at Sweetens, um, did the did the initial shaping work on that. And, um, believe it or not, it was actually softened quite a bit from its <laughs> initial, uh, iteration. Um, what, one thing that leads me to another comment about, um, about landman, that is a very, very severe green, obviously. Um, but one reason I think that it works is because of the, just the, scale and size of it. I mean, it's 28,000 square feet. It's, it's even bigger than number five. I mean, it's one of the biggest greens I've ever seen in my life. Agreed. And, but what, what we soften is 
that front shelf and then all the way along the left-hand side. And then it kind of bleeds into that, that back shelf. There's tons and tons of ground that's probably somewhere around one, one to 2%. I mean, there's, you know, while it has these massive transitions, there's probably, I don't know, you know, maybe 18,000 square feet of pinnable area on the green. So, um, it, it was, uh, that, that was, that was a big exercise at Landman, uh, Jim and, and Derek to, to get to, we wanted to strike a, a certain boldness and almost a tribute to this bold land. I mean, it needed these in, in some cases, you know, very dramatic features, but, um, you know, making sure those maintain their playability, uh, you know, there were some instances like the 15th where we had to kind of wear the dirt out a little bit. I think three different people touched it by just continuing to chip into that hill on the left to make sure that, you know, balls weren't going to just always race across the green, that you could access that left side and keep it up there and be satisfied and in, in, in hitting a good shot in there and, and getting the reward that you deserved. And Will did give me the line of play, Rob. And I and I hit it pretty damn good, and and it fed down just as as he had promised. And so I understand totally the the feeder, the 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 shelves. And I thought to myself, you would never tire of this green. You would never lose interest. It would hold your captivation forever. I'm just curious who who had the <laughs> out of the box thinking for that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I really give I give a ton of credit to Gus on that. I mean, he um, that was one of Gus's greens, and um, Gus is an amazing shaper, <laughs> and yeah. um, he he took what we were saying and, and put his you know to your point about creativity, you know, putting your spin on it, um, and that's what we do. We really empower our guys. We want our guys to be thinking we want them to put, put yourself into it. You know, we want yep. their input too. Yep. And, um, and, and Gus did really did an amazing job with that. And like you said, I mean, it, it does, it's never going to get old. And one thing that's cool about 15 is like, there's three, you know, kind of primary three or four primary areas where a pin would go and they get progressively more difficult. I mean, like <laughs> Derek, I think when you played it with Will, he told me the pin was way back on the back, right. Way back. Will right, it yeah. did a, Will, and that is such a hard spot. I mean, it's so hard. Uh, Will's a great player, and he had a nice shot up there. He told me, but um, I've actually oh, never. He, he seen had to mention that, right? That he hit. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't exactly. hard for him. <laughs> wasn't hard for him. It's hard for everybody else. <laughs> um, but you know, I've actually never played it with one in the valley. I'm looking forward to that. But um, yeah, that I think that's a good, all good points, sir. Well, I will tell you that Will told me that if you. Because I, I went around the golf course before we played it. So I went oh, by cool. myself. I toured the golf course, took my time, took a lot of great photos, um, really enjoyed the morning. And then I went out and played with uh, with Will after that. So I had a preview of what I was about to play, which was That's very helpful. Very helpful. That would have been but helpful. I would, I, but I will tell you, after I got off to 15th green and we had putted out, Will said, it's just going to get better. And <laughs> that's when we got to the 17th green and I was just putting balls down everywhere, uh, putting and, 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 and imagining that I'm a member there and I get to, 
embrace all of the locations, all of the features, all of the kickers. And I just thought, man, if, if it starts at 14 or 13, whatever hole that you fell in love with 12, uh, when you got to 15, you were, you were going to let them have it. Yeah. I mean, it was seriously at that point in time of the round. I mean, it was just the pedal was on the floor <laughs> Sp- sprinting to the finish. I mean, it was all the way down wide open. Yeah. So, and I can tell you that uh, your infinity greens eight and, and two, uh, your, your, your beautiful greens in the backdrop of the cornfield hillsides, number eight and nine, I'm sorry, nine and 10. Uh, what a variety, Rob, what a variety you and Tad and your team came up with. But I can tell you that, that uh, you have to ask yourself uh, over and over and over, are these features the ones that we celebrate that Rainer does, the Beeritz and the Eden and the ones that McKenzie built and the one that all these golden age architects have built, these greens that we idolize, is Landman going to be one of those golf courses that we will idolize for 50 to 100 years later? I'm just curious. Jeez, Jim, that's a hell of a question. <laughs> um, There's such a bold statement, Derek. There's such... I, they're, they're I mean, just I mean, out there. I, I think... Um, Here, let me rephrase uh, that, uh, Rob. Did you just build one of the greatest golf courses ever? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, let me let me try to answer that without sounding like a conceited jerk. Um, again, I mean, <laughs> that was kind of a joke, but... Um, <laughs> um, you know, Jim, we yes, are very but, yes, proud but, of it. Yes, but let me explain why. <laughs> we we um, we're very proud of it, and and I think that um, what I, well, the way I'll answer that is, Landman is so unique and so different um, that it, it is going to to stand out in 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 this era, um, j- just because it's it to me feels like a, a game changing or a a shifting kind of just a golf course that, that will have a, you know, kind of a, a mark on the timeline, if you will. I mean, it's, it's one that that people will come back to. And I think it's one importantly that, that takes a lot of, takes a lot of uh, time to get used to and understand. And the more you play it, the more you're going to get it. And, um, you know, the, the biggest thing for me walking away, getting the initial feedback that I was so pleased about was how playable it was. I mean, I can't tell you how hard we worked to make something so bold and so dramatic that playable. And then to, to see that it was that playable was, 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 it was a huge reward, but I, I do think that it's a golf course that that's going to have a special place. I, I mean, I, I really do. I, I, we, we felt like that when, when we first saw it and um, every golf course that you get involved with, it is your responsibility to give your highest and best effort. And, and we always do that. Um, and with, with respect to Landman, it was, um, that's what that site deserved. That's what the Anderson's valuable resources deserved. Uh, that's what, all these incredibly talented people who touched it, you know, it, it, it needed 
you know, Landman, the finished product is honors all those things, all those people, everyone who touched it honors the Andersons honors the land. Um, I, I think that it, it did what it was supposed to do. I'm really proud of the, the, the way we identified the questions and, and the way we answered them. And I, I think it, it's going to be one of those ones. Derek, if you took a black and white photo of the 17th Green at Landman, black and white photo, and then you took a took the same black and white photo of Sitwell Park, the, the very famous Sitwell Park Green, that McKenzie had different people standing at different elevations to show topography. What difference are those two greens from each other? Not much, not much. And that's why we celebrate the Sitwell green in, in, in England in its gray, old, crumbly photos. And the 17th at Landman uh, has that same scale. Uh, will it be celebrated? That's what I'm asking. Well, there's nothing else like it in existence. I mean, I think you I think that says enough. Yeah, there's nothing else like it. And the old black and white photos of Sitwell. Rob, did you ever uh, did did you think about Sitwell when you were building that green? Yeah, it's fun. Absolutely. I mean, we, um, you know, Sitwell. Um, the Sitwell Green at Landman is what I would call a uh, tribute to the original. It's tribute to the spirit of the original, the, the daring nature of, of Alistair McKenzie. And, you know, that's one thing I feel like it's been lost a little bit. In, in some, we are definitely in another golden age. And, I mean, we're so lucky to be practicing in this era. Um, but I, I think that sometimes – you know, we've lost a little bit of the daring of the old school architects. I mean, those guys were very experimental in, in some ways. And so Landman's a tribute to that boldness of, of vision. Um, but um, we did have, you know, we looked at the pictures. We wanted to capture that scale, but for the modern game with probably a little bit higher green speeds, we wanted to make sure that it was playable. And so, um, it has a couple of, you know, two primary shelves, um, whereas the, the original Sitwell was more segmented. Um, but it, the important thing was to capture the just sheer drama of it. And and I think that, that that's one thing that that green really does a good job of. And it does maintain its playability because of how big and broad the, those shelves are. And I, I'll, I'll tell you guys something funny that you'll probably laugh about this, but um it dawned on me after I played Landman for the first or second time that completely by accident, after hyping this Sitwell Park recreation green that we were doing, the real green that's actually closer to the Sitwell is number seven in terms of it doesn't have the drama of, of the original Sitwell. Um, the seventh at Landman is more um is more segmented like the original sitwell with the little tiny pockets so the actual the seventh is probably more close to the actual playing characteristics of the original sitwell okay but the 17th is the one that captures the spirit of it 
That's fair enough. Yeah, that makes that, sense. That, 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 I could that see dawned that. on me. So if you read what McKenzie said about the original Sitwell and talking about using these circuitous routes to get to certain hole locations and, you know, just these little pockets that you could get to, that's what is what you really see on number seven. And, you know, seven obviously is a really bold statement. You know, we were really flying very close to the sun there. I mean, yes. and I, and I, and I told <laughs> I 100% credit my partner, Tad King with pulling the pieces together there. He is an amazing green finisher and he's the one who really made that thing work. And what's so cool about it now to me is that you can, it, it, boy, is it a fine line, but if you play the right shot, you, you get, you get paid off. And I saw Jim Hartzell, hit a ball from way out in the fairway, about 40 yards out, rolled it all the way up there, took that big contour on the right, came around the deep bunker and laid dead at the hole down there over there behind the bunker, about two feet from the hole. He, he did it exactly what, what, what you're supposed to do. And there's, you know, you can't just putt straight at a lot of these holes and you got to go way offline. And, um, but if you hit the shot, it'll work. And one thing I've, realized also having now played the seventh hole a number of times is how much the severity of that green really places a premium on where you put the ball off the tee. Um, and, and I've, I've fallen in more and more in love with that hole, the more I've played it because it's all the way back to the tee or, you're worried about this, this green and, and, and really trying to get down in front of that green to have a shot up that green up into it, rather than coming across it. That is a big reward and it's hard to get to that spot. So it really, it really places a premium on, on the strategy of the drive, but by, by having a green that severe and credit to Tad for making it work. I mean, it can kick your ass up and down, but it can, reward you too i mean we've had a hole in one there in the in the tournament we've had uh eagles um birdies we we've had we've had uh we've had tens too i mean it, it's just one of those ones i think i met george is the dome named after george george's dome oh yeah it's uh pat's uh pat's forehead Pat's so, forehead. Uh, so thank that's you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Pat I met is, him yeah. on that hole. Oh, and, that's uh, perfect. Yeah, that I think Will and the guys came up with that nickname. Yeah, Pat's, uh, uh, perfect timing. He's yeah. working on the bunkers, and they yeah. said that's that's Pat's dome. Thank you for Rob. How <laughs> how I was able to attach a name to the dome. It's perfect. Yeah, I love that. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. You mentioned earlier about uh, when we were talking about routing the golf course. You know, you knew where you're going to begin landman. You knew where you were going to end it. So that's very helpful in that process. You also mentioned it's it's sometimes more difficult when you have a complete blank slate and you have to figure out how to get in and out of it. Does that did that describe the your approach or your experience um, at Red Feathers, your project near Lubbock, Texas? You know, that's a uh, Red Feather. Um, yes, in some in some respects. I mean. We, we had a blank slate there, 135 acres, um, a flat, flat golf course, much closer in characteristics to the, the original site at Sweetens. Um, and, um, you know, we had to kind of figure out how to make that work. And we had to go through a number of iterations on the routing 
to kind of make it all piece together because it's um it's 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 very compact um and and boy was it a lot of pushing and pulling and tweaking at the edges uh, once construction started to to get that and jim if i'm not mistaken you you were involved uh, with the raws course correct yes sir that's correct okay yeah. so yeah i mean you know you guys obviously did it did an awesome job there and um one thing that i think is is interesting jim might get a kick out of this is I may be a little bit off in the acreages, but the Rawls, I think, sits on 300 or 350 acres, something like it's, that. It's big, for sure. It's big. Yep. So um, our site is 135. Let's call it a little bit less than, than half the acreage. But here's the deal. Jim, Jim will probably remember this. In Lubbock, when you start moving dirt like that, it's all about controlling floodwaters. It doesn't rain much there, but when it does, it rains hard. And right. we have to control a 500-year flood. So the site is heavily engineered. And we have to. We had to move 1.3 million cubic yards of dirt below a 3229 contour in order to control this 500-year flood. Now, we, we had to do that on 135 acres, um, which was a, was a real challenge. Um, and, and they had very similar parameters in, in what they had to do at, at, um, at, uh, at the Raws, but you, but you guys had to, to kind of spill that out over, you know, 300 acres. And so, yep. um, as a result, the Raws has sort of this, you know, it's big, you know, feels big, broad, um, kind of rolling, um, you know, you guys did a great job selling selling the landscape. Um, it, it, at Redfeather, um, you know, we started getting into it and the dirt started coming out. And it was like, how are we going <laughs> to, you know, make this thing look right? I mean, we can't, it can't be as big and broad as, as the Raws because we don't have the benefit of all of this land. And um, again, we were working with uh, Mark Berger out there and, and uh, John Ellsworth and, and we had the benefit also of, of having Joe Hancock help us out out there. You know, That's Joe correct. very well. Yes. And, um, and, and those guys just absolutely crushed it. I mean, again, the, we, we start, we kind of all collectively came up with this vision of you'll remember this, Jim, just East of town outside of Lubbock, there's this real rugged, uh, you know, landscape that it looks like something out of uh, no country for old men. I mean, you've got these mesas, <laughs> kind of flat top mesas, these yep. real rugged channels where the water's carved out over hundreds of thousands of years. And, um, and so um, we, we, we went with that kind of look, we've got these kind of abrupt landforms, um, you know, big, you know, ravines kind of carved through it, um, trying to mimic that kind of landscape. And, um, and because everything was, a lot of it was going down and we, we had to export a, a, a fair amount of the dirt too. We're kind of able to keep the golf course. It doesn't puff up. It doesn't feel like a golf course that has too much air in the tires. You know what I'm saying? You know how sometimes it can, feel like there's a, that's like an analogy we use. It's, it's too much air in the tires. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to take it down. Red feather still hugs the ground, but has this real rugged, cool look to it. 
And I, I've told Brad, our client out there, I mean, I'm every bit as proud of our guys um, for what they accomplished at, at, at Red Feather is what they did at Landman. I mean, to, it, and it's a complete opposite scenario at Landman. You're trying to take everything down a Red Feather. It's more of, of kind of creating things out of thin air like we did at Sweetens. But um, the way those guys have executed, and I, I mean, I really give all the credit to them for, for putting the dirt in and making it look look the way it does. I mean, it, it's going to be a really, really cool place. And, um, it, it just, you know, it's, I'm excited about it. We we're we'll wrap it up here in the spring. Derek, he talks about the, the, the landfall that just East and South of, of Lubbock, uh, Rob, did you get a chance to see the steel house, take a tour of it? I don't think I've seen that. No. And the Sobrero house. Uh, did you get a tour of that? No, I, I, I've got something to do on my next trip to Lubbock. It sounds like you, when you, Derek, when you, and this has nothing to do with golf, Derek, but it has to do with imagination and creativity. There's a section of Lubbock just to the southeast of Lubbock that has the hill country that falls off, looks like a, a plateau that just falls off into yeah. into a big, big canyon. And on the end of this, there's these very creative houses. And this guy built this steel house that looks like a monster. And when you walk through it, it's all made of steel and has nothing to do with golf architecture, Derek. But when you see this house and you see the creativity that goes on in the brain, Mm -hmm. whether it's a golf course or it's a house, you realize that there's no limits to what you can do if the creativity is not stifled. It's unbelievable, Rob. You've got to go see go, that house. Thank you for the recommendation. That's on the list. I'm going to go do that next time. I appreciate it. You can't stifle the brain, Derek, whether it's Red <laughs> Feather Golf Club, whether it's Landman, whether it's uh, Shadow Creek. The, the list goes on and on. The creativity, if you are allowed by an owner, by a development group, by a, 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 a group of people, let the architect be creative. Let him show you what he could do, and the possibilities are endless. Amen. And you put a you put a good team together, and and you you empower them. That's that's the that's the key thing is to, to to piggyback on that is understand that the people who are operating the equipment are are creative people too. And and when you when you combine all that, I mean. That's the possibilities being endless is a good way to say it, Jim. I mean, it really, that's the, that's, that, that's, that's the energizing fun part about golf construction and design to me is watching things come out of the ground and then everyone kind of puts their heads together and you re- react to it and say, yeah, let's change that or God almighty, <laughs> put the pedal down, roll with it. That's perfect. So, you know, you just roll with it and see what happens. And then eventually Derek, somebody has to put a scorecard to it. Then somebody's right. got to rate it, and then somebody's <laughs> got to slope it. And oh, that's the most important it. part, by the way. Uh, <laughs> ah, Jim's, Jim's waving his hand in disgust. I, I get it. I've only seen uh, aerials of, of Red Feather, Rob, but it, it, speaking of creativity, I mean, it looks like you had a lot of fun with that project and gouging out the earth to make it look like those arroyos and those canyons and those waterways. And I, you know, I have a feeling once, once we all get to go see it, we might have to uh, get together on another podcast to talk about it. I think there'll be a lot to discuss. 
We yeah, should have I, the podcast at the Steel House. Let's do it. I would love <laughs> that. I, I um, I'd love to sit down and and, and talk with Jim sometime too about uh, his his experience out in Lubbock and um, everything with the Rawls. I mean, that was a um, I mean, I remember reading the Golf Club Atlas post on that. Gosh, it feels like twenty years ago, but um, you know, that was a big a big undertaking and kind of a in some ways, Jim. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a shift for you guys in some respects to. I mean, wasn't Pacific Dunes the course that you were at before that? Yeah, went from Pacific Dunes to Lubbock, Texas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, kind of dovetailing back to earlier parts of the conversation. I mean, each project asks a different question. And, you know, Pacific Dunes, you didn't uh, – the question was not to move a zillion yards of dirt, but in Lubbock it was. And so – Sometimes you've got to do that, and some, sometimes you don't. I mean, we have ones we're looking at where you can just breathe on it, and that's that's what it needs. And, and some some you got to, some you can't. <laughs> but that's the fun part of it is each one's different. Agreed. One last question on creativity: the Punchbowl Green is not the most creative feature anymore. It's been it's been done enough. The one at Landman is is what is that like a quarter acre in size or a third of an acre oh, i mean it's it's huge i mean it's it's another big one it's it's in excess of twenty thousand square feet i mean it's 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 just a it's a big one do you, I mean, that, is there any is there any point for you ever to do another one after after you built that not really i mean it's kind of <laughs> like uh, yeah like what <laughs> well we've, we've done that exactly i mean that was just kind of the perfect site for it there was a little cove in there right underneath eight grain and in in landman form it was it, it it needed to be um it needed to be big and bold we had to throw those sides way up one of my favorite things about that course is standing on the 10th tee and if you look closely out over the the left bunker guarding the green you'll catch this sliver sliver of green that climbs up about 12 15 feet and it's kind of like wait a second is that the green way back there i mean it yeah <laughs> it's a big one but it uh, that's a, it's a fun hole. Yeah. You know, Rob, for, for so many years in your career, you had Sweeten's Cove and that golf course almost didn't make it. You could speak to this more than, more than I could, but it was, it was difficult for you. I know. And we're sitting here years later and we're talking about Landman and Red Feather and, and, uh, your project at, um, Palmetto Bluff. And, uh, I believe you have some other irons in the fire and maybe even some other projects that are, that you're starting on it's been a hell of a journey for you. It's, it's, it's always, it's a tough business and you know, everybody goes through ups and downs, but so happy and, and that, that you're getting to, to take your shot now and build new courses, which not too many to, to go from those, those dire years at Sweden's Cove to getting these brand new, new build projects is, it must be very rewarding for you. It is. And well, thank you very much for saying that. I mean, it, it truly is. And it's definitely not lost on, on Tad, and I, you know, what a gift Sweetens Cove is. I mean, it's, um, I was talking to somebody the other day and, you know, and I, I said it, you know, thank God it made it. Um, but what Sweetens does for us just on a professional level, I mean, we, we call it a, you know, a fruit bearing tree. I mean, it, it took forever to bear fruit, but now that it finally has, it's, it's, it's doing that. And Sweetens has this knack of being kind of the, the perpetual 
publicity machine. I mean, it's like a energizer bunny of publicity and, um, it is really, really hard to get a start in this business. And, um, without it, we, we just wouldn't be having these looks on all these great places. And, um, I, I sort of pinch myself every day that I get to do this. I mean, it's, it's a dream come true for sure. We're all lucky, Rob. We're all. Yes, so sir. Lucky. Yes, sir. We, we are lucky to get to do it. <laughs> Rob, I also have to thank you for uh, letting Will Anderson know that I was a, a bourbon drinker. He was able to get me, <laughs> give me access to a, a bottle or two that I had never either get the chance to try or would have had to pay an arm and a leg to ever get a drink. Oh my of. God. So thanks for that. Uh, you, you betcha. Isn't Callahan's the biggest trip in the world? I mean, oh. I, the first time Will and Bryce took me in there, I mean, I wasn't sure if we were going to put our ski masks on and rob the joint or not. And, you know, <laughs> you, you, you go back into this little room back in the back and the, you know, the leather couches and all these fancy the cigars <laughs> and the bottles yeah, and the cigars. Little... It's like, it's like, what is this place? I mean, I thought I was in the twilight. Just if the listeners would need to know, there's a, uh, just across the river from, from, uh, Sioux city, there's a, a liquor store. It looks like an ordinary liquor store, but there's a little speakeasy in the back. And if you have access to that, there people got people smoking cigars and they store their lockers full of bourbon. And there's a, uh, at the very, very back, a, a magical, I call it a magical bourbon room with some of the rarest bottles of bourbon that you'll ever find. <laughs> and, uh, I was able to sample one. That's that's amazing. That's awesome. I'm glad we'll uh, pop that open for you. That's a treat. Good is good. Well, Rob, thanks for thanks for talking to Jim and I. That was fun. Landman's a trip, um, and it's just as you said, you know, referenced a minute ago. It's it's not like anything else. It, it is definitely worth uh, wherever you are to make the the voyage. You know, getting getting to outside of Sioux City isn't as hard as getting to Bandon, so it, it's something that should be on everybody's radar. And uh, if you're not familiar with Landman, uh, look it up. Hopefully this has stimulated you, but it's uh, it is a, a unique experience in American golf. Thank you guys. It was was really great to be on. Appreciate you guys having the conversation. And uh, Jim, let's let's get together one of these days, and you too, Derek, and go go play some golf and hang out. It was been a big fan of yours for a long time, so I'm glad to get to finally talk to you. Thank you, Rob. We're gonna our paths will cross somewhere soon. I was in, glad to enjoy Landman. And uh, if I'm ever back down in Lubbock and I lose my dog, as you know, you just stand on your, you stand on your hood and you can watch it run away forever. That's right. That's the, that is, that is the classic Lubbock comment. It's so funny. The Lubbock other one Chamber, is Lubbock Chamber of yeah. Commerce will enjoy that one. Yeah. The other one that's hilarious is always, oh, Brad, how long does it take to get to there? 10 minutes. That's, you know, that's our little joke. You know, everything's 10 minutes away. So. <laughs> That doesn't matter where you are. Everything's ten minutes. Exactly, buddy Holly. Rob, enjoy your enjoy your daughter's birthday party. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate being on. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, Jim. That was great to talk to Rob. Always in a fascinating conversation and. It makes sense because Landman is a fascinating golf course, uh, no matter what players think of it. And I think almost, you know, everybody who goes out of the way to travel there probably knows what they're getting into and wants a bite of that particular apple. But of course, there are going to be some people who go to Landman, it's inevitable, who aren't ready for the size and scale of that golf course, the rolling pitch of the land, the and, and in particular, the, the greens. Um, you know, Rob talked about the fifth green. We spent a lot of time talking about that. And there is an enormous bulge right in the middle of this this uh, 
I forget what he say. It's how much twenty thousand square foot green thirty big. house. Big. It's huge. Big. I mean, it's beyond the size of of anything that you can imagine. And there's a, a you know a three foot high bowl, you know, inverted bowl right in the middle of the green. And if you're on the wrong side of that, as I was, and you're trying to get through the hole on the other side, not only do you have probably a, a 40, 50, 60 foot putt, but it's going to break. It might break 20 feet. Uh, so, and I think that's fun. I love, I loved that part of it, but a lot of people will get in that predicament and not know how to respond and have a yes. potentially have a negative reaction. So I think the, yes. the, the size and scope, scope of the contour on the greens is really part of the conversation. It's what makes, it's part of what, maybe it's the thing that makes Landman most unique because you just will not be able to travel to nearly any other golf course anywhere and find the enormity of, of these greens and the contour. They're, the uh, 14th hole is the Redan, and we, you know, most of us have seen Redan holes before, but this one is, it's like a football field <laughs> from left to right, and it it, yep. it probably pitches you know, 12 feet from the high right side down to yes. the lower left side. Yes. It's just, you know, you just don't ever encounter the, the, the size of these things. So I think that's fascinating. But, uh, uh, in some places it, it, you know, could potentially seem too extreme, but you know, somebody, some, something has to stake out one of the extreme edges of, of that conversation of from subtle to extreme and Landman does it. And, and I know, you know, Rob is not afraid to be uh, the architect who's out on that, that flank kind of redefining the possibilities of what golf can look like. Um, and you had a really uh, great question about that. And you said, you asked him, those greens, did you build them for fun or did you build them for scale? And, and um, I think his answer was both. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, he did say both. And, and I didn't want it to be one or the other. I was curious to see if he was going to go down that route. For me, they were fun. But I wasn't trying to shoot for score, Derek. I wasn't trying to record my lowest uh, score ever on a scorecard. I was entertained by them. I was uh, uh, mesmerized by them. I was, as you said, he was on the flank uh, of, of, of uh, creativity. Um, and... For me, they were also a part of the scale. Uh, when you talk about the 14th hole, the Redan, very good observation. You know, where does this Redan start? Well, it's, it starts way, <laughs> way back there. If you're by the pin on the far left corner of the green and you look back up for, from where you came, you think, ah, dang, that is a long way away. And so in that corner of the property, the scale worked. The entertainment value is up. Where that green starts and, and ends, who cares? He said, I built them for both. You said he went to the outer flank. I totally agree. And I think to me, the 14th, the, the 15th, the 16th, the Sitwell green, they were all so big and in scale. And for some people as you talked about, being on the wrong side of the feature uh, could could uh, make you a little bit bothered by it. Well, I got to putt around over here to get to there. You know, that would bother some people who work on a putting stroke that's no longer than six feet or or have perfected that, that, that eight foot and in stroke. 
You don't get the eight foot and in stroke at land. <laughs> maybe after gotta, maybe after you've already hit a hundred foot putt. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta work on your hundred foot putt. Where are you gonna work on that hundred foot putt other than at Landman? And so those were the things that caught me off guard when I played it. But those are the things that I maybe I maybe I went a little too far when I said these you take a photo of these greens in black and white and they could be in a book a history book of architecture for years to come uh was i that far off there was i no i don't think so i don't think so i mean that's one of the things that differentiates and this is part this is part of an ongoing conversation that you and i have that's what differentiates that era of architecture from the modern age, the, the post-World War II and really the, the architecture of the 80s, 90s, 2000s when turf grass gets, gets you can get, gets really advanced and you yes. can get those really fine blades of grass and you can, you can scalp greens and get those green speeds up to, to 12, 13, 14. And right. they didn't have that ability in 1920 or 1925. So the thought was, uh, you know, let's make the greens as interesting as the shots being played into them. It, and rather than just um, a, a place where you're going to take your one or two putts and get and move on, I mean, yes. I, I'm, I would I wasn't a player back then. You weren't either, but I'm sure on some of those those really um, extraordinarily interesting contoured greens of that era, pick your architect. Four putting was probably just part of the game. It yes, was probably not like you know nobody was cursing McKinsey. Um, for when they four putted nine at Cypress you know, point, you know, like you yes. get on, you get on the wrong level and who knows what, what can happen or you're off the yeah. green and your ball's going to roll 30 feet past the hole. I just think that was part of the, the sport. We don't, we don't accept that anymore. You know, <laughs> so we absolutely don't accept that anymore. Yeah. So, so to your point, yeah, I mean, you could photograph greens with that level of contour and, and they would certainly feel more at home in a, in a previous era than they do now. Now they're, now they really stand out, but Landman yes. is just a unique place. There's, there's not much like it. Uh, it. It's not to be looked at in relation to anything else or, uh, you know, put it, it's, it's not a, it's not indicative or derivative of any kind of modern trend in architecture. I don't think it, it's because that piece of land is, is what it is. It um, is what it is. If, yeah. if you wouldn't have made hundred yard wide fairways or 80 yard wide fairways or greens on in those placements on that level, as, as Rob said, it would have looked funny. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. It just would yeah. have, you know, I don't know that anybody would have enjoyed playing that golf course. So you kind of right. need all that, all that space. Um, well, let me ask you this, uh, and I hate to put you on the spot, but do will or do green speeds of today's era, should they dictate what is acceptable in the entertainment value, the strategy, the architecture of greens themselves? Does speed really uh make you calm down everything should it make you calm down everything versus as you said back in uh, sitwell park era days uh where you you really had to give it a lash to get that ball to move from from one location of the green to the other does green speeds mute the entertainment value of a green yes they do and no they shouldn't but but it's i think it's inarguable that they do i mean the greens are softened you know 
historic greens are always softened through the decades. Um, and sometimes it's it's purposeful. Sometimes it's just gradual. Sometimes the you know the low spots get filled in, top dressing and all that, and they're never like recontoured. And and just over time, greens have a, have a tendency to to level. You know, maybe the edges bevel, but the internal contours tend to flatten out. And and then then a superintendent or, and a membership comes along and they want fast greens and there's no there's never an impulse to recreate that interest and that contour and that that those that nuance in the green that makes them very interesting to putt. So the answer is yes, green speeds drive the boat. I think in most cases, I had this conversation just the other day with with Bill Coor when we were walking around Wicker Point, their new project in Alabama, and I, I asked Bill. Would he have preferred to design greens with more contour, knowing that they were going to be maintained at a, you know, at a nine or a ten or eleven? As an architect, as a creative person, as a designer, as somebody who knows golf and knows good golf, does would he like to see more contour, or does he feel obligated to mellow out the contours, knowing that certain memberships are going to want their greens to run at twelve or thirteen? And, you know, he was being billed, he was very diplomatic and said, you know, there's a marriage, you know, you have to get the green speeds to match the contour. But when you're building a new course or you're creating a green from scratch, that's a dialogue you have to have kind of up front, right? You have to know the membership and you have to know the superintendent. And I think it, for you, in your case, Jim, you would, you would have to go to them and say, uh, you know, I, in my estimate, my judgment, I would like to build, you know, some more detailed contour or more uh, a co- type of contours that will only work with, with, you know, a slightly slower green speed and everybody has to be on board. Otherwise you get a situation that's probably not going to work for good golf. Yeah. And sadly, sadly, uh, all, all the things that you talk about, uh, are, are happening today with, with golden age design greens is that the top dressing, the, the, the shrinking of the greens, uh, the speed of the greens is, is changing the, the intent. And so, for me, Landman and some of those greens, not all of them, I wasn't a fan of all of them, but some of those greens allowed me to play a shot that was once a part of the structure of golf in America, on the ground, rolling, left to right, right to left. That's what captured my spirit. I thought that was super cool. But when you get to greens of the championship era, the Augustas, the the uh, name the golf course, insert golf course. When the speed of the greens is so fast, and and that that four foot putt is very delicate, uh, I think we tend to lose the entertainment value, the 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 fun factor, and that's why Landman for me was such a departure. And I had to ask Rob for fun or for scale. It was such a departure to see those holes play the way they did, even at the green speeds uh, that they can reach today. I thought it was cool. And uh, I I don't, and I hope with you uh, saying the same thing, that uh, yes, they do, uh, speeds are a factor. I wish they didn't, uh, I wish they didn't dictate architecture. Let me ask you to slightly veer off in a different topic. When you're looking at golf courses and making assessments of them, Landman has enormous greens. We've we've obviously been talking about that, and some yes. greens have a really extraordinary contour 
other greens are are a little you know a little flatter and i'm sure if i played them over and over again i would pick up on the nuance or the tilt but they're mm-hmm. but they're much calmer than some of the other greens like like the the par 5 sixth green kind of sits up on that that yes. open area and that's that's pretty calm i mentioned 16 in the podcast yes. so when you're looking at a golf course is it a is it a, a, a an asset or a detraction for you or neither if you see uh, greens that some have significant amount of contour and others are are a little more mellow and lay flatter and then the next one has contour does consistency matter do you like to see a thematic presentation of green shaping throughout 18 holes or is that variability uh, an asset i think variability is an asset i think randomness is an asset i think unpredictability is an asset i think the unknown is the asset. Uh, that's why golf courses are vanilla. That's why they're, and I say vanilla with all due respect. When greens become consistently, for whatever term you want to call it, consistently uh, uh, flatter, to me, the, 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 the randomness, the unpredictability, the entertainment value goes down. Uh, And now you're searching for other things. Was the routing good? Was the strategy of the bunkers good? Was the second shots into the greens good? Uh, Was the the layout, the topography well done? Because you're now you're searching for something else (laughs) because the greens didn't do it for you. Yeah. They, They didn't do what they used to do, Derek. And the greens in the beginning of time and architecture in America were the selling point of every architect. And now uh, if I see greens that are very vanilla, very understated, now I'm looking for something else to entertain me. You know, the left, the right, the right, the left, so on and so forth. And so I look at all of that and and I could simply say to the ownership, the membership, the the Greens chairman, the club president, uh, the 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 woman in charge of the of the committee, are the Greens real? Are the Greens the most important thing to you in this golf course, or what is the most important thing to you in this golf course? The upkeep, the agronomy, the landscape, the service, the very uh, the variety and golf shots, uh, the length of the golf course. Because once you go away from those greens, you're, you've got to go start searching for something else. And, and I look at that every time. Uh-oh, these greens are kind of vanilla. Now what do I do? Exactly, exactly. I, I, would, I'd, I would be able to judge a golf course as a favorite of mine or great based purely on the greens. 18 interesting thing, greens, uh, yep. I'm in. And, you know, and ideally, like, there's some good golf getting into the greens as well sure. and good recoveries, sure. but 18 really good putting surfaces can be yep. a, a, a fantastic golf course to me. Yep. Great. As you just said, great strategies, you know, interest in the fairways, angles, bunkers, plain tilted greens. I'm out one, to, one and out one and done for me. <laughs> but here's the thing, Jim is, is, you know, I don't belong to a club. So every round of golf I play for the most part is on a new course that I've never seen before. Uh, and sometimes I'll get to go play a course twice or three times, but most of the time it's 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 one tour around. So obviously the things that you know an interesting pet a, a set of greens, the greens that have a lot of contour 
are going to stand out and I'm going to be attracted to that. I've had that experience before when I played, um, I played dormy club earlier this year. Um, and those are some for Bill and Ben, those are some really highly contoured greens. And I, you know, that carried the day for me. I, I really enjoyed that golf course. If I was a club member though, I, I often wonder, would I want that every day? You know, there's something to be said about being able to to hold that eight footer. You know, you know this this putt. I know what it's going to do. It's going to break three inches right to left uphill. You know, I can make this putt. There's something about greens that are modestly contoured that enable. You know, you're not you're not going to three putt that often. So I mean, I can see the. It's not for me, but I can see the you know the club member attraction to that and pitching a set of greens out there that are going to invite a lot of three putts or, or balls that are like peeling away from the hole. It's not, it might not work everywhere. It might not be for everybody. I think we've, you know, lost that element of, as you said, randomness and surprise and that willingness as players to embrace the, forget about the score, but you know, like, like (laughs) what's, what's the interesting shot that I have to do to get this ball close to the hole? You know, that was, that was the old, you know, spirit of, of golf and, and match play and, and yeah. un, the unknowability of a golf course that we've lost. The spirit but, of adventure, but as if, Bernard Darwin says, the yeah. spirit of adventure. But if you're playing for ah. handicap, like most, many people do, most people do, you know, that's anathema. They're, that, that's going to screw you at the end of the that's, day. That's going to screw you because you start putting one more, one more stroke on every hole because you are missing those 10 footers instead of those whatever we want to talk about. But as both you and I have uh, just said, we enjoy the, the entertainment value of the greens. But can I go back to this perfect time to talk about this? Remember Dave Axlin's famous quote, four feet or four inches. If we have greens that are breaking only four inches, would we say vanilla or would we say fun? If they break four feet, and I know that Dave was talking about elevation change, four feet or four inches. I'm I'm now applying that four feet or four inches to greens. If we have a four-foot breaker versus a four-inch breaker, how do you walk off that green? I'm entertained by the four footer, but some people wouldn't see the four inch break. And it's that fine line of what entertains you day after day after day. I seek out the four footers, but most club members would probably want no more than four inches. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about this all day. What if, (laughs) what if it breaks, you know, four inches to the right and then four inches to the left and then four into the right again, you know? So that's not a four footer, but that's just like those little micro, you know, so micro contours that could be entertaining too. But that's where, you know, like the club member always has an advantage there because they get to know their greens on their home course really well. And they probably, you know, might get to a point where a four inch break is like pretty significant to them, but they, yeah. But what, just to close out here, if anybody's still listening to us ramble as we get off topic, is um, Landman's Greens, I, I do think Landman's Greens, for the most part, uh, work because they fit the environment. And I think that's the, that's the main takeaway for me is that, Agreed. you know, I, and I, I've, I'm on record as, as I, I really like Sweetens Cove, but mm-hmm. I don't 
love it as much as a lot of people do. And I, one of the reasons is because those greens sit up so high and balls fall off the edges and recovery can, can be a little extreme to me, but because they're all kind of popped up, if they were a little lower, I think I'd, I'd have a different response. Obviously, yeah. most people who play it don't have a problem with that. That's probably why they like it. But yeah. at Landman, the greens are notched into the landscape. Uh, you know, there are, there, I'm not sure if I can think of any that are kind of popped up in that style and because they didn't need to. I think that, that had to be done at Sweet and Scope. And at Landman, um, they they just kind of settle into their environment and they work yes. in that yes. context. And then you can you can ripple them and and you know make big ridges and 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 sweeping curves on them because they're appropriate. You know I think the seventh green at Landman is the one that that uh, and we talked about that. He said that was really more like the Sitwell green. It's kind of yes. like a like a bubble. Yeah, smacked onto a hill and you could fall yeah. off the edges on that That's one. Right. But otherwise, I, you know, all those those greens are, you know, quite nice. And I thought his idea that he saw the 12th hole, it was a natural, the 12th green, and, and it, he kind of fanned out from there. He had to have the 12th green. However this routing was going to work, he said the 12th was one of his the banner greens out there. He knew he had to have 17 because of the landforms, the Sitwell Park green. Uh, you referred to the 7th which he's likened to the Sitwell more than yeah. the 17th. The 7th the seventh with the big dome, and you had to be in the right part of the fairway. I agreed to all of that. Um, agreed to the, to the idea that his partner, Tad King, and the, 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 the talent that was out there helping him create these, these features. I mean, he had some names out there. I mean, if you want to talk about a movie script and powerful players in the movie script, he had them out there, and it shows in the character of the bunkers. It shows in the character of the landforms. You know, Tad King and and his creativity. Those are all part of the the story of Landman, uh, gathering people together to create a, a a feature. And as you said, the greens, uh, uh, the 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 landforms, the scale. I said to I said to Rob after I played the eighth, the part three. And I went down and played nine and 10. I wanted to go right back up to the par three on top of the hill. You know, those are the entertainment things that I'm looking for and that others may, may like and agree with me or disagree. But I thought Rob pulled off something that was extraordinary. His team with Tad King pulled off something extraordinary. And uh, the owner, uh, Will Anderson, allowing them to be creative and embracing the land as much as they did. It, was, it kind of was like a perfect fit at the perfect time for a perfect, uh, in their minds, a perfect golf course on that layout. And I can't disagree with them. The scale was off the charts. The fun factor was was entertaining. Uh, and it was fun to talk to Rob about uh, what he saw out there with the owner and, and his team. And I say to you, Derek, should we have more landmans? Uh, should there be the scale should be try to be topped uh, and even get bigger than landman? I don't know. You know, uh, what uh, David Kidd did at uh, Sand Valley in the widths of the fairways, you know, how big is big enough? You know, what? where is the next landman going to be? Do we need another landman? Do we need another uh, of anything? <laughs> Pretty cool, but uh, for sure worth seeing and, and spending time out there uh, as you and I both did. Yeah, yeah. Just to, just to finish up here, you know, I, I – 
no, we don't need another landman or or anything. <laughs> but if if the if the land and the environment and the property demands a golf course like that, then you'd be foolish not to build it. So it, it right. all comes back. It, and this is a great way to, to finish off. It, t- it ties in with the the opening quote that we let off this podcast uh, about, which was, you know, find, you know the, the routing and, and making holes work and sacrificing holes if you need to and, and yeah. locating those green sites. And, you know, the, the, the 12th green was located initially and, and, and incorporated and it kind of led to other holes developing the way they were you mentioned the eighth green this little short par three which i think actually if i i, I might be wrong about this but I, I might be right i think will anderson actually found that little hole i'm not sure it was okay. part of the original routing so okay it all kind of tie, ties back into uh that quote of of you working with the land and and not not getting obsessed with with one routing or, or one hole and doing what's best and i think you know that's what Rob and the team did at Landman, and they, they've got a winner. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that was awesome, Jim. Um, thanks to Rob for joining us. Great person to talk to. A lot of information about Landman. So if, if listeners, if you haven't played it yet, I hope this, this piqued your interest and didn't wear you out. But um, <laughs> it's a huge golf course and a huge topic, and there's a lot to talk about. I'm glad we were able yes. to spend some time with it. Agreed. All right, Jim. Thank you, Derek, as always. Thank you, Rob, as always. 